Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And in Galatians, chapter 3, as we move our way through this text and remind ourselves of some of the most critical aspects of the doctrine of salvation, delivered by Paul first to the Galatians, of course, he speaks of it in In Corinthians, he speaks of it again in Romans at length, expounding upon some of the things that he presents in Galatians chapter 3. And as we focus upon all of this, we understand that grace, we understand that salvation, we understand that the peace of God is all grounded in the solid rock. It is all pointing to and directing us to faith in Christ alone. And as Paul writes to the church had, uh, churches of Galatia, there had been some drift away from that, and they had, in many ways, accepted the gospel that Paul had communicated to them, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And after that event and experience, or the lip service to that grace, they began to, at the influence of the Judaizers, in these area churches, they began to add works to that equation. And when you add works to that equation, Paul says in the end of chapter 2, you nullify grace. Works and grace are on the opposite spectrums. Works and grace are, are an antithesis to each other. But most importantly, Paul will begin to lay out, not just in this chapter, but beyond in the book of Galatians, that he is not in any way denouncing any kind of works or actions. He is simply saying that it must come by grace first. The relationship with Christ precedes acting like you're a Christ one. He's not eliminating any kind of rules for living or the law of Christ that he addresses in in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 calling them to obey the law of Christ. He's not saying that rules don't matter, lifestyle doesn't matter, uh, moral issues don't matter. He's not saying that once you come to Christ, you can do whatever you want. He is stressing the importance time and time again that works cannot bring you to Christ, but through Christ, He produces good works in you. And that was the big issue throughout uh, the Galatian churches and the influence of these Judaizers that, that Paul's addressing in this letter. He does so in a couple of really interesting kinds of ways in the beginning of chapter 3. The four verses that will conclude our little study today, 10 through 14, introduce some deep, deep theological truths concerning what we call soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And Paul expounds upon those in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Pastor Andrew read a passage from there this morning. The truth in all of this is that Jesus Christ has secured for us what works could never secure for us, salvation and hope and promise. And there are some really important elements of that in practicing the Christian life and in living soberly and righteous in this present day and age. And when, in fact, we we backload with works, or we feel we have to finish the work of Christ by doing good deeds, we nullify grace. Paul's message is simply grace, grace, grace. You didn't do this. Christ has done it all on your behalf. So, in the context here, as he lays out his history of the gospel as he defends his preaching of the gospel, as he reminds them that the apostles' gospel and his gospel were the same gospel, as he confronts Peter in chapter 2, his message is always justification or righteousness always comes through Christ. It never comes through good works. You can never do enough to satisfy a holy and righteous God. Never, never, never. The Galatian believers, at least some of them, were starting to be swayed by these Judaizers who wanted to, after their faith, turn them back towards the law, particularly circumcision and the moral codes of the law. And Paul is challenging them 
that that is a return to something that nullifies God's grace. You were going backwards. This isn't the direction you ought to be going. You shouldn't be listening to these, these Judaizers who are spinning this and making this an issue. So there are some clear issues that he addresses in chapter 3, and as we, as we talk about those this morning, I pray that you all understand how glorious your salvation is. God for whatever reason in eternity past, by His grace, selected us to be recipients of His goodness, to rescue us from our sin, to pay the penalty in historic manner of our sin, and to call us unto Himself through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, giving us the faith that we need to believe, and adding to that faith that we needed to believe those righteous works that come post-salvation and don't save you anymore. You are saved to the uttermost in Jesus Christ alone. That's why the thief on the cross who believed was assured that he would see Christ in heaven. There was no need to tack on good works to that. What Christ had done was absolutely sufficient. And when we begin to grasp that, and when we understand that we did nothing to attain that, and we are so undeserving, your salvation becomes glorious. It becomes overwhelming. It becomes moving, and it becomes the motivation for you then to live your life as one who was purchased, to glorify the one who purchased you soberly and righteous, producing the fruit of the Spirit given to you by faith in Jesus Christ, and Paul begins to bring these things together. So the Judaizers, in trying to turn them back to circumcision and back to the law, were, were citing Abraham as an example. So Paul takes it straight on in this text and begins to articulate where they got it wrong. You know, sometimes in our Christian life and experience, and oftentimes in my ministry, people will say, Pastor Jim, do you really, really have to call out these people who are, who are doing wrong? Can't you just tell the truth? I wish it was that easy. You do need to tell the truth, and you do need to preach the gospel. But when someone is believing in something that is not the gospel or another gospel, and you know that the belief in that other gospel that isn't the gospel will lead to their ultimate condemnation, why wouldn't you speak up? Why wouldn't you address that? Why wouldn't you call them to a serious, sober-minded reflection on the truth of the Word of God? Sometimes confrontation, and particularly in, in churches, in these churches, is necessary. It is needful, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and pretty soon the gospel gets squishy. And if there's one thing that Paul can be known for is that his gospel was never squishy. It was clear, and it was articulated with passion, and it was confronted and confrontational to those who would reject or pervert that gospel. And that is part of the polemic of the book of Galatians, although if you read it and understand the tenderness of Paul, he is concerned for the souls of these people that he had led to Christ through the preaching of the gospel, their expression of faith, and he's concerned for their souls. So much of it he does out of alarm and concern, even when he turns to some pretty direct confrontation, verse 1 of chapter 3, you foolish Galatians, what is your issue? So as we take this up, there are glorious promises that that really are spoken to in a fuller, fuller manner throughout the book of Romans and, and in portions of the book uh, of the letter to the Corinthians and in other places as well. And we'll touch upon a little bit of that this morning. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us our hope in Christ alone, our hope of glory, that eschatological component of faith alone, but believing and knowing for sure that, that you will keep us that we are secure in You, and, and someday our faith will be sight. But I also pray that You would open our eyes, because there's some subtleties to these add-ons and tack-ons, and even we're guilty sometimes of holding people to expectations that are, are not expectations in the context of the Scripture. 
And although we do need to address lifestyle issues, we can't conflate that with salvation issues. And it is so easy as we look through the course of history from, from Galatians on to do that, to be distracted, to, to take away and, and, and make the gospel squishy and add something to it, and, and even, Father, the danger of nullifying the grace of God by changing the gospel, may it never be so. Not here, not in our lives, not in our evangelistic efforts, never. May it always be our hearts and our thoughts and our hope are rooted in Christ alone. It may be for your glory. Show us through this passage of Scripture the glorious truth of our salvation rooted in Jesus Christ and His finished work. It is a glorious story indeed. Hear, teach, reveal through your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who, who has changed your mind about grace? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I preached such a vivid gospel. I painted such a clear picture. It was as if you were watching the crucifixion as I was opening up the Word of God and explaining to you what Christ has accomplished. Let me ask you, and he turns to this, asking questions rather than defending truth and, and making them defend why they are leaning towards moving away from faith alone and adding to the gospel. And in these series of questions, they're rhetorical. He's not looking for an answer. He's pointing out the error of their thinking. Let me ask you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We know how they receive the Spirit, hearing by faith. So he's implying, why are you turning back then to these works? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, the Spirit initiating your faith, initiating your salvation, convicting you of sin, that experience of conviction, that experience of, of pleading with Christ to salvation, uh, those, those are very real experiences. And you know that it began by the Spirit. So why now are you depending on perfecting the flesh by obedience to external standards and, and, and laws? Why, why are you turning away from what you know to be true? Did you suffer so many things in vain, whether that be persecution or the experience of that glorious salvation? Was that all in vain? If indeed it was in vain, he's saying, listen, I know that some of you are turning away from the gospel and I know that some of you aren't turning away from the gospel, but you're entertaining this false teaching, and it's a dangerous, heretical, false teaching. Hear what I say. Listen to what I'm communicating. Does He who supply the Spirit to you and, and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, these rhetorical questions then he says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, his argument takes a little bit of a turn, and now he is directly going to speak to the false teachings of the Judaizers who are citing Abraham for their false teaching and bring some clarification to all that was being said in the undermining of the truth. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we, as we understand this text, he is citing Abraham, and he is citing Abraham's belief, his faith in God, and he's tying it to the notion that it was Abraham's faith alone that resulted in his righteousness. It wasn't obedience. It wasn't experience. It wasn't the law. It was his faith in the promise of God alone that resulted in his righteousness. And he is asking them, if his righteousness was by faith alone, if that's why he was counted or reckoned to be righteous, why are you turning to something else for your righteousness? And as we look at all of this, he is using a, a really important uh, argument by the Greek sophists and, and other people of that culture by citing noted authorities to make his point. And he is going to begin to cite this noted authority of Abraham, this man of righteousness and faith. He is going to 
take the Judaizers back to the Old Testament Scriptures, clarify some of the mistakes that they've made, challenge them and their thinking, and encourage God's people that salvation is credited to them or counted to them as righteousness solely on the basis of faith. That is His message. And we have, in the introduction, talked about that, that, that soul reliance on faith and grace through Christ alone for salvation, highlighting the, the depravity of man and our inability to do anything to please God or make Him happy or satisfied with us. Do you suppose that in any way, post-salvation, you still have inherently in you the ability to satisfy God in a perfect kind of way? Of course you don't. It is even in salvation that the grace of God is so real and we are so dependent upon it that we can only become like Christ through that extension of grace, God graciously helping us to grasp and to learn and to grow and understand. It doesn't come by what you do. Lest we point at these Judaizers, been around a long time in these Baptist circles. And I can remember the day when there's a lot of tack-ons to faith that had nothing to do with salvation, a demand to behave a certain way, to dress a certain way, to listen to certain things, to do certain things. We'd like to say, well, we were never undermining faith but isn't it always undermining faith alone when you add something to faith? Paul said that becomes another gospel entirely. It's unacceptable. That's what he speaks of in the first chapter. And we're not the Judaizers, and we're not turning people back to the law. We're even more trivial than that. We're turning back people to stupid things that are irrelevant. And if you can take my class back there, indifferent I'm not sure God's interested in that at all. What He's interested in is do you believe by faith alone and Christ alone, through grace alone, for my glory alone? Do you understand what I did for you? And are you dependent and, and staking your life on that truth? Again, He's not saying that works don't matter. But there's a fine line between a righteousness that works and a works righteousness. A fine line sometimes. And he's warning them of that. So he says, the context of all of this, Abraham believes God by faith alone. And it was counted to him, reckoned to him, declared of him that he was righteous, solely based upon his faith in God. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham receives this promise that the Lord counted him as righteous because of his belief, and he would bless him. And by blessing Abram, he would bless the world. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he says, I will make you a blessing, Abraham, and your name will be great, and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in all families of the earth, in your faith, and because of your faith, shall be blessed. So as he speaks of Abraham, he is focusing not on the works of Abraham, he is focusing on the faith of Abraham. Did Abraham have faith in Jesus Christ? You have to understand that in the context of redemptive history, God was working in the nation of Israel pointing all of His chosen to a time in which He would send the ultimate Redeemer, Messiah, who would be Jesus. There had been a transition away from that Old Testament ceremonial sacrificial system to the revelation of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those that were under the law. And the moment that the atoning work was finished and Christ was raised from the dead, that old covenant was replaced by the new covenant, and that new covenant was in Jesus Christ, and salvation that has always been by faith in both Old and New Testament was now realized not by means of a promise that God made to Abraham, 
but a person that God sent into this world to rescue the souls of men. You see, see what's happening here? So even if there was an attempt to go back to the law, it would be negating the revelation of, of Christ and, and the fulfillment of all of that Old Testament law, and now salvation in Christ alone. But salvation was always, always, always by faith alone, a faith and a promise, and now in this new covenant era of faith and a person, Jesus Christ Himself. Don't you remember every time, and we'll remind you again next week, that we come to the communion table to celebrate together, that we recite those words, this is the new covenant in my blood. This changed everything. It fulfilled everything. I am that I am, and neither is there salvation in any other. Was he denouncing the law that God gave to God's people? Was he denouncing their identity? Was he denouncing that reminder that they could never keep the law and they needed to look forward to that ultimate sacrifice? He wasn't denouncing any of that law, but now the law was fulfilled and there's no going back. And you can't replace Jesus with the Old Testament covenant and law. You can't do that. And that's what the Judaizers were trying to do. They were doing it in this subtle way. And this is what Martin Luther had to deal with in the Reformation and the church at Rome. They weren't really denying that faith was part of the equation. Nobody would say that faith wasn't important. What they were doing is they were adding works to faith. And Paul declares early on in the book to the churches of Galatia, that's another gospel entirely. That's, that's, that's not the gospel of God. So in that subtlety, he is speaking. And he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. We reminded you last week of this text in Romans chapter 4 where Paul spells it out in a little different way to the churches at Rome. Is this blessing of faith then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It was reckoned to him. It is imputation. We'll get there in a minute. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? The law and circumcision came a long time after Abram's exercise of faith. The law and circumcision did not come before his exercise of faith. It would come some drastically long time later. And to tie it to circumcision and the law is just a false understanding. Of course, it was not after he had been circumcised. It wasn't circumcision, but faith alone. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision later as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It is that faith that redeemed him. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, reckoned to them, credited to their account, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He is saying, listen, the true descendants of Abraham were not tied to his faith by ethnicity. They were tied to God through Abraham's faith. And they need to exercise that same personal faith to truly be called a child or an offspring of Abram. If you flip back real quick into John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8, it's an interesting exchange. And in verse 39, some of the religious leaders and those who are following the teaching of Jesus answered, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abram, Abraham did. Is he speaking of a works-based salvation? No. He's speaking works that came after salvation by faith. We'll get to that. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I'd heard from God. 
It's not what Abraham did. You were doing the works that your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We are a pure nation ethnically. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm here. And I came not of my own accord. God the Father sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear the Word. You don't have ears to hear. You don't have a desire to listen. You're staking out this promise, this, this hope in your ethnicity and in your heritage, but it comes in a different place. And because you do not have a relationship with God by faith like Abraham had, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. For those of you who teach and preach kindness, that was a pretty direct statement by Jesus, wasn't it? (laughs) Your father's not God. Your father's the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the, with the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is a father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You still want to rely on your ethnicity and your rules and your laws. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And why were they not of God? Because they did not come to God through faith alone. They thought they were a blessed people because of their ethnicity and their heritage and their good works and the law. Paul will address that in Galatians, this works of the law. He says in verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Why do you make yourself out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Jesus is saying, the very one promised to you by Moses, I'm I'm that guy. I'm that guy. God has sent me into this world to fulfill all of the requirements of that old covenant law-giving in a perfect kind of way. But you don't want to listen because you don't know Him. I know Him. And if I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know Him, and I keep His Word. Really, really important. He links knowing God to living appropriately, and He dislinks or disconnects living appropriately to know God. It is a very clear distinction that Jesus is making, and Paul will expound upon that throughout the New Testament. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day, and that is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham or Abram in Roman, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. Abram believed that God would keep his promise, and Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of that promise And in that, Abraham would have rejoiced. Why? Because Abraham's faith was based on the promise, and Jesus said, I'm the fulfillment to that promise. I am He. If they didn't get it yet, they'll get it. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying. They didn't like it. They didn't believe it. And they didn't accept it. But Abraham did. And he said if he was here today, he would rejoice in this day. He would be thrilled about this day. He would see fulfillment in the promise that he believed so long ago. So as he claims to be God, their rescuer and redeemer, the fulfillment of all that that Old Testament law pointed to, they knew exactly what he was saying. They didn't like it, and they picked up stones to throw at him. 
Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Their problem was a problem of belief and faith. They didn't have it like Abraham. But they wanted to claim the blessings of Abraham because of the law and because of works. Now, Paul will address that as he moves through this text, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God, verse 8 of chapter 3, Galatians, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, God and His promise to Abraham knew in this redemptive historic plan that the same faith of Abraham would be offered to the Gentiles, and it would be offered to the Gentiles how? The very same way it was offered to Abram, by faith alone. Not by works of righteousness, not by the law, but by faith alone preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That was the good news. But the good news to Abraham and the good news at the presentation of Christ were a little bit different. Abraham was believing that God would keep his promise and send a Messiah, and Jesus now is saying, I'm the Messiah. I, I am. Jews couldn't accept that and didn't want to accept that. But in Abraham, based on faith alone and the promised Redeemer, all of the nations shall be and will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, a man of faith. So true blessing and true salvation comes by faith and by faith alone. And Abraham believed a promise, and today we preach a gospel fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and our faith is based on an identity of the great I Am, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, the Savior of the world. And as we reflect upon that, and Paul speaks of this, he is just amazed that they want to turn back again to that law. There's some interesting applications in our culture today, and I think this is important. We've touched a little bit on our our ABF. We're going to wrap up this section uh, today. But every human being who's ever lived is created in the image of God. There's a contingency that is built into every human being. Now, not, not just saved and unsaved, but every human being. It goes back to, to Genesis chapter 1 and, one and 2, and the contingency is pretty, pretty, pretty simple. Every single human being ever born possesses in some capacity, the image of God. And because they're fashioned in a similitude or likeness to God, that their intrinsic worth, value, and dignity, true worth, value, and dignity is rooted in that divine image. They are above the rest of creation. They are apart from the rest of creation. And God created man and said it was very good. But within that creation, the creature now in his creatureliness was beholden to the Creator and that contingency. We didn't have any options to do whatever we wanted to do. We could only do how He fashioned us and made us to do and be. Male and female created He them. We live in a world where people are crafting their identity, but the creation account says that your identity is contingent upon the Creator who created you distinctly, male and female, in His image to bring glory to His name. There isn't anything else. There can't be anything else. If indeed we are creatures, we are beholden to the Creator And that's the interesting uh, argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter 1. You reject the Creator, and you put yourself in His place, and now you're prone to all kinds of sexual evil. That's our culture today. And it is amazing to me that there are Christians who are holding ground now saying that you are born transsexual or you're born homosexual, and that defies biblical contingency. No, you're not. That's not a popular message. And I imagine sooner or later someone's going to pick up a stone and hurl it at me. But if you're a creature, you're beholden to the Creator whether you like it or not. And that includes every human being, not just Christians. But I think there's a built-in contingency even in our identity as Abraham's children. We are now not just the created beings from Genesis chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 5 say that we are a new creation. 
We are fashioned new. And what are we fashioned to? The image of Jesus Christ. Saved so that righteousness works. Delivered as workmanship to verify our faith through the way that we live. Our, there's a built-in contingency in your Christianity. You have no such freedom to make up an identity, Genesis 1 and 2. But in your new life, claiming to be a Christian, you have less of a reason to create a new identity. You know what your identity is today? It's not male or female. Your identity as a Christ one, a child of the King, saved by grace. You hear me? It's anathema for a Christian to say, well, I'm a Christ one, but I was born this way, because it defies contingency, and it reduces the Creator to a bit player in your life when, in fact, your, your very existence is dependent upon God. Do you know that He appointed the day of your birth, and He knows the day of your death? Because He's a Creator. And he has the right to determine those things. And we are contingent upon that. But as new creations who are now no longer blinded by sin, we have a greater responsibility to live soberly and righteous, not to live like the world. We're called out from that world. Contingency and identity matter today. And our world just screams identity. Listen, your identity is in the fact that God saved you through Jesus Christ, and it's a glorious salvation. And He saved you so that you might be His workmanship and live differently, that others might see Christ in you. You are not your own. And what does Paul say about that? Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ, verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. There is a way that I must live, a contingent way that I must live because of Jesus Christ, and I will not nullify the grace of God living any other way. For if righteousness was through works and behaviors, then Christ had no purpose. Wow. That is a powerful argument. How do you define yourself today, and what is your identity? It is in Christ alone. For all, verse 10, who rely on the works of the law are under curse. And why are they under the curse? Well, they'll tell us a little bit later on in chapter 3, the law was given as a, a guardian or a schoolmaster to reveal to us that we could in no way ever keep this law in a perfect capacity. There's no way we could do everything demanded by us or for us in the law. We would always fall short, and the law would reveal to us our sinfulness and to reveal to us our deadness and trespasses and sin, to reveal to us that the consequences of a lack of perfect obedience would be eternal. It was to point that out to us. You couldn't keep it all. You couldn't possibly do it all. So to rely on the works of the law, which you could never keep, is a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. All of the things. You see, you can't pick and choose. It's not something that you can select. It's not something you can say, well, I'm good at that and not so good at this. James reminds us that you can keep the whole law. But if you violate it in even one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. See, God is perfect and holy and righteous, and His standard is the same way. The law was just to point us to our need for God and His involvement in our life. Abraham understood that and believed by faith. And now, those who profess to believe by faith are one of turning back to the law, which just brings us back to the curse and condemnation. Paul writes, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law because everyone who's ever tried it has failed. Let's liken it unto the diet you probably started in the turn of the new year. How's that working out for you? We, we don't have the capacity. We don't have the capacity. Aren't you thankful that Christ has the capacity to rescue you, to seal you, 
the promise for you eternal life. For the righteous shall live by faith. A quote out of the book of Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For all people it is faith alone in the gospel, for it is in the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or the righteous by faith shall live. It is a faith alone gospel that Paul is preaching, and now there are some who want to turn back to a works-oriented kind of gospel, or at least add it on. But the law is not of faith. They're two separate things. The law shows you your sin, and faith shows you the glory of God and the answer to your sin. The law was to point God's people towards God Himself cry out in their need. It is the very message of Habakkuk, a quote that he uses right here. You must trust alone in the Lord. No matter what else is happening, you must trust alone. That's always been the gospel. From Abram to today, it's always been the gospel. For those who are trying to, to turn it around and go back to the law, he's saying they're two separate things. And again, he's not saying that the law wasn't important. It served its purpose until Jesus Christ came. And now, the faith in the promised Redeemer was now the faith in the person of Christ that would rescue you from your sin. The law, it's not a faith. The one who depends on that law must live by that law entirely. But Christ has redeemed us, purchased us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed as everyone who is hanged on a tree. And suddenly, Paul is introducing some very deep theological principles. He's already introduced what we call imputation, and that process of imputation is that, that God took all of our sins and placed them on Christ for his sacrifice at the cross, and then he took the righteousness of, of Christ, and he placed it on those who believe by faith alone. It, was, it, it is a reckoning process, and that's the very language that both Old and New Testament use. It was reckoned as righteousness because Christ took our sin and paid that price and gave us his righteousness, and then we call this important process substitutionary atonement of Christ. The law condemned you when you were under a curse. Here's the good news. And the gospel means good news. Jesus Christ paid the penalty of the curse and freed you out from under His curse by faith alone. For it is written in the Old Testament, curse is everyone who was hanged on a tree. Now, be really careful as we move through this passage of Scripture, Christ wasn't cursed for hanging on a tree. Christ took the curse and paid for it on a cross. The language of the Old Testament was that from time to time, they would take someone who was stoned for one of the greater sins of the Old Testament, and they would tie them to a pole or to a tree as a sign and a testimony to everybody else. This is the consequence for disobeying God. Jesus Christ, as He hangs on the cross of Calvary, it was a consequence of all of our disobedience. As He hung there on the cross, He became a curse for us. He was perfect. He perfectly fulfilled all of the law, but we couldn't and we didn't, so He became that curse for us, imputation and substitutionary atonement. By the deeds of the law, Paul says in Romans, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. None. But through Christ and through Christ alone, there's hope of redemption. Paul speaks of it again in Corinthians, where he said, he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus Christ did what the law could not do and hanged on that tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And this ties it all in a nice little bow. In the post-Pentecost explosion in the church, the genuine and true sign of redemption was what? The gift of the Spirit who would come upon you after you believed. Abraham wasn't perfect, but he lived an obedient life. But his obedient life wasn't what saved him from the curse of the law. It was his faith in God that saved him from the curse of the law that resulted in what? An obedient life. You see how that works? You cannot, you cannot get that backwards because that is not the gospel. Pastor Jim, I'm a nice person. You are cursed under the law because you're not as nice as you think you are. But Jesus became a curse for you. And by faith, you come out from under that curse as a child of the King. You were given the Holy Spirit, and there's an eschatological component to a future component to that. Because of the gift of that Spirit, you will stand before God someday. Not as one under the curse, but one clothed in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. As you look at this text, as you, as you talk about what's happening, this is exactly what Paul describes in some of the most familiar verses to us when it comes to salvation. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature, a contingent new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, this gospel of faith, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We go out and live our righteousness in Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is not by works. It can never be by works. Works condemn you and place you under the curse, but the work of Jesus Christ and faith alone allow you to become the righteousness of God in Christ. Abraham believed. The blessing was promised to Abraham and all nations of the world, including the Gentiles. But the basis of that faith was the promise of God and a Redeemer. And we know today that that is Jesus Christ. A new age of redemption has arrived, and it is grounded in Jesus Christ, and it plays a role in how we live our life, a contingent role. It is not our lives. We live by the faith of the Son of Man who loved us and gave Himself for us. That is the contingency built in. You do not get to do what you want after salvation. The Paul, the glorious text in Ephesians chapter 1, filled with all kinds of redemptive doctrine, says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, the promise to Abraham and the revelation of Christ, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, that future implication, nothing can separate you from the love of God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And we are simply now just waiting living soberly and righteous and just waiting for the sound of a trumpet that is guaranteed not by your works, but in Christ alone. This passage of Scripture is so chock full of spiritual comfort, and that spiritual comfort is grounded solely in what? Faith in Christ alone. Could it have been more clear to these Galatians? It's never clear to those who don't believe, but it becomes glorious for those who do. And sometimes we look at our salvation and we don't see it as glorious, but it is glorious. God did that. You did nothing, nothing, nothing. 
that someday we will see him and become like him. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Promised in Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, and offered to all in bondage. It is a glorious message indeed. Father, bless us. Encourage us, challenge us, teach us. And ground us. As we sing in a moment, a mighty fortress is our God. I pray that you remind us that This message of the gospel is not one well received in our culture today. From the pen of Martin Luther and the Reformation, he understood that. And yet, like Paul, so influenced by Paul and his teaching in Romans and Galatians, he would turn the church back to the truth of Scripture, turn them back to salvation in Christ alone call for that salvation by faith alone, infuriate the leadership of the day, but he would hold his ground. He would rely on your word, and he would trust that neither is there salvation in any other. Like the Galatians, like those at the time of the Reformation, we are living in an age where the gospel has become squishy being enticed away from faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, toward other things as subtle as it might be, and it's another gospel. May you keep us pure. May we cling to the truth, and may you make your salvation more and more glorious in our hearts and minds as we see it for what it really is, God in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, to whom all glory and praise and honor is due forever and ever. We worship you in Christ, in this glorious gospel that has changed our life. Accept our worship, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to close our service out by singing a mighty fortune.